Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for one in a series of podcasts that document three days of workshops on the study of the Enneagram, with panels exploring the different personality types, led by Beatrice Chestnut and hosted by Michael Lerner. This episode documents the Type 3 Enneagram panel, led by Beatrice Chestnut. Okay, so welcome back for our Type 3 panel. Um, I'll do a short introduction and then we'll hear from our panelists. And we have Wendy, Patrick, Kimmy, and Dave. So thank you for being on our three panel. Um, So Type 3 is the second uh, type in the heart triad that we'll talk about today. Type three is the, what we call the core point of the heart triad and that it's in the middle and it's one of the vertexes of the inner triangle of the Enneagram. Um, it kind of means that two and four are variations on three in a way. Three is the core point. And three is also the point which is the prototype for all of us uh, for just the, uh, the, the fact that we all have a personality. So threes identify with the personality or the image, and then they, in personality, they don't really realize that they're more than their personality. Uh, They get very identified with an image and then almost confuse their real self for their image, which is something we actually all do. We all identify with our personality and think that's all of who we are, when really, according to the Enneagram teaching, uh, we're much more than just our personality. So at the core of type three is a kind of confusion of their real self for the image that they take on in the world uh, as a coping strategy uh, to get what they need. And for the threes, it's a little bit like twos in that they had an early experience often of not feeling loved or approved of or appreciated for who they really are, but more in the sense of Uh, Different than the twos, which are more about what they do for people or being pleasing or supportive of others, it's more, for threes, it's more about having an image of success uh, or achievement. Uh, And it's both the actual accomplishment of tasks and goals and achieving of status uh, and also a looking good, a kind of a fulfilling an image that is socially approved of in whatever context they're in. So threes are very good at kind of reading a room or reading the context uh, and and almost automatically ascertaining what is valued in that context, uh, seen as successful, seen as uh, something that is desirable and becoming that. Uh, The defense mechanism is identification. So it's as if they identify with the image of what's approved of uh, and become that. And then of course in personality, uh, believe that's who they are. Uh, And so this can usually be a taking on of characteristics and a presentation that fits a particular image. And for threes, again, it's more about uh, having a sense of what's seen as successful or admirable. Uh, more than more of a personal, like pleasing or supportive thing than it is for twos. So because for threes, it's uh, the coping strategy is about being seen as successful or being admired. 
uh, they get very good at doing whatever it takes to be successful. Uh, so they tend to be very task-focused, very work-focused, very goal-oriented, really good at kind of figuring out what's the goal I want to achieve and uh, finding it's the most direct and efficient line from A to B, how do I get to the goal? So it's almost like a laser beam focus on the goal that allows them to achieve a lot because they're really good at, at identifying what is the result I want to achieve and how can I get there? And then they do what it takes to get there. So they can be uh, very productive, uh, very effective in, at, at work, and there is a lot of focus on work. Now, threes are heart types, right? Which means they are emotional types. Uh, there is a myth about threes, or a misconception, that threes are not emotional, right? So the thing is, they are heart types, and they are very emotional, but part of their coping strategy is based on basically turning the volume down on emotions. Um, so they're good at kind of not acknowledging, un and this is unconscious of course, kind of numbing out their emotions, not tuning into them, focusing on something else so that they're not in their emotions. Now one of the reasons why threes work so hard is because they're avoiding their emotions and they have to work really hard to avoid their emotions. So this is why people think, well, they're not emotional, they're not in touch with emotions. The emotions are really there. They just aren't always in touch with them because if you think about it, if, you, if you're someone who wants to get a lot done, Emotions will sh slow you down. I have a good friend who's a three who says, emotions are not aerodynamic. <laughs> right? Or another three friend says, emotions have a high drag coefficient. <laughs> right? So if you're in a mood, like us twos can be in a mood, sometimes I don't feel like getting things done, right? But threes are more about getting things done, and so they're really good at not allowing a mood or an emotion to slow them down. Now, of course, one of the things that happens when they do slow down is feelings bubble up, right? Because they are emotional types. This is why they don't slow down, one of the reasons why. Uh, because I have a, another three I know said one time, he knew he was a three when he realized he was going to a doctor's appointment and just the thought that he would have, have to spend time in the waiting room, potentially for he didn't know how long, he, he would bring four books with him. Now he's not gonna read those four books in that waiting, but that's how nervous he was about having any downtime whatsoever. So it's like, don't leave any room because feelings will come up. So there is, they are emotional. And when threes grow, one of the big things they do is get more in touch with their feelings and more in touch with their emotions. And what they learn is our feelings are, are exactly the way that we get information about who we are and, and learn about who our true self is that's different, that might be different than the image. Uh, so sometimes threes will identify with an image and they'll like go into a line of work that everyone around them wanted them to go into, but doesn't really speak to their deepest desires. But they may not know that until they do some personal work and they get more in touch with who they really are and realize, you know what, I don't really like what I'm doing now that I have the experience of getting more in touch with my feelings and what I like and don't like. Uh, so those are some things about threes. I'm gonna see if there's anything else I wanna do by way of introduction. Um, I think that's it. Let's leave it there for the introduction and leave it to the experts to fill us in on the rest. So, Wendy, why don't you start us off and just tell us a little bit about how you knew you were three and how you see the type three patterns playing out in your life. Um, so I like to say that I popped out of the womb with a to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, that was very much reinforced in my family, who were all about um, making sure that we were accomplished. I was the child of two British immigrants, and they had no um, frame of reference where I was growing up other than what they knew of, which was to reward their children for being successful. And uh, and I did that in spades. So I was a, a straight-A student and um, scholarships and graduated summa cum laude Phi Beta Kappa, had no idea what I wanted to do. All I knew what to do was to work really, really, really hard. Um, and so I really identified with the recognition that came from accomplishments. We were talking a little earlier about subtypes. Mm. And in my family, my mother always said that the worst thing she could do was raise a vain child. So imagine that you're getting rewarded for being accomplished, but you have to do it on the down low. So I come by my self-preservation subtype, quite honestly. Um, but then the point you were making about finding yourself in career you know, doing something you didn't like to do. I spent 35 years in Silicon Valley doing software and things like that, and I was really good at it. So I had, I'd sort of found my zone of excellence, but it wasn't my zone of genius. Um, but I persevered because I couldn't think what else to do that got me the recognition mm. and also provided the accoutrement of success. So, you know, I got to drive my little BMW, but it was always a used BMW because we don't want to look flashier than somebody else. <laughs> and then we traded it in for a Prius, right? Because mm. that's, you know, kind of the environmentally correct thing to do. Plus you get the HOV lane, which gets you faster to where you need to go. <laughs> it was really the latter instead of the former. Mm. Um, and then, as happens, I think for a lot of threes, I ended up with a health crisis because I just ran myself into the ground. I was just working all the time. It was not uncommon to work 70 hours during the week. From a relational standpoint, um, my husband, who is a type six, um, used to ask me to just slow down. And I was like, why? I'm providing. And he's like, yeah, but I married you because I like who you are, not what you do. That concept was so foreign that somebody could actually like me for me without the succeeding and the, the accomplishment. So it wasn't until I had a health crisis that I sort of discovered mm -hmm. that I was a three. Mm -hmm. You're saying a lot of good things. I do want to highlight sub the subtypes of three um, because what you said about self-preservation. <laughs> yeah. So the self-preservation subtype is a type, most of the books about the Enneagram talk about the social three, and we actually don't have a social three today. We have uh, one self-preservation and three one-to-ones or sexual subtypes. Um, you're, it's, I'm, I'm actually self-preserved. Oh, you're self-preservation too. Okay, so we have two self-reservations, two sexual. So um, the social three is the one that's sort of more, uh, so the, the fixation and the, uh, the, um, the, passion of the type or vanity and self-deceit. Now, it used to be self-deceit was the passion. Claudia Naranjo switched it so that vanity is the passion. Some people still think that self-preservation is the fixation. Either way, we can talk about both of them. Um, self-deceit, self right, sorry. So self-deceit is something where um, you, the thing I talked about, how you identify with an image and you don't know who you really are. So sometimes people say threes lie, but it's not really fair because threes don't really know they're lying because they just have identified with something and they don't know that they don't know who they are. Um, so that's one thing to say about self-deceit. Vanity is, um, now what 
Naranjo says, which I think is brilliant about uh, vanity, is that self-preservation threes have vanity for having no vanity. So there's a way that they <laughs> want recognition, just like all the other threes. They like to be on stage. They're good at it. Uh, but they have a little bit of discomfort with bragging or, um, or self-promotion. And so they can want to sort of be a little bit more on the down low when it comes to showing off or things like that. So having the used BMW or the Prius, trading it in for a Prius. And I always meet a self-preservation three at almost everything I go to. They're, they turned in their BMW for a Prius. <laughs> It's amazing, it's amazing. And, and the person who, the self-preservation three is the one who doesn't really wanna wear designer clothes with the labels on them, that's the social three. So the social three wants to be more on stage. It's a more aggressive, more competitive three. But we still wanna look good. Yeah, of course, still wanna look good, all the same three stuff. It's just a little bit more modest. Uh, and similar with sexual threes who are a little bit more shy about recognition. They'd rather have other people succeed. So we'll get to that in a minute. So se sexual threes are more about supporting others and being appealing in almost in a charismatic way. Um, so just a little bit about this, the subtypes to orient you to that. And then I wanted to highlight a couple of the things that you said. Um, one is this piece about sometimes threes will work and work and work and, and they don't really slow down and work on themselves until they have some sort of breakdown. Uh, and they often describe uh, illness or accident or something that actually stops them in their tracks. Uh, do you wanna say something about yours? Um, yeah, so I ended up in the hospital with a lab-induced case of pancreatitis and almost died. On my way to the hospital, um, I was trying to figure out how to get a contract redlined. And at the same time, my friend was driving me to the um, hospital and she didn't know anything about my middle name, my social security, and I was incapable of literally giving it. So this is the other thing I think about threes is that we reveal certain parts of ourselves, mm. but other parts of ourselves we, you know, we really are very kind of private about. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got to the hospital and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm a competent professional. I know how to do being sick, which I had no clue how to do being sick. And I mean, I was really, really, really sick. I mean, seriously, to the point where I almost died. First day, the chaplain came in and asked me if I wanted to pray. I said, nope, got this. And by the seventh day, that um, chaplain came in and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I was like literally on my knees. I will take any form of prayer, any form of crystals, any form of healing. You bring it on. I am now receptive. I have been humbled. And it truly, it was really, really scary. And in that moment that we were praying together and she was over by the, the window um, I had an out-of-body experience where I could see myself, I could see her, I could see the light behind her, um, and I thought, okay, this is, we have to change. There's something <laughs> that, <laughs> that is not working about my life, and it was that was in 2008, and so it took me about eight years to get out of my career, but at that point, I was like, I am not identifying with my work. Um, I started training to become an Enneagram coach and teacher through the narrative tradition. And I, it radically shifted how I valued my life. Mm -hmm. My life became more about discovering who I am, what my feelings are, how to 
connect with my feelings. You know those little diagrams that they have with happy face, sad face, mad face, afraid face? That was where I had to start to figure out the whole emotion piece of it because I was so disconnected from feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say just a couple, yeah. one more thing about self-preservation subtype. So it's the three that's a hard worker plus the self-preservation instinct, which brings in a fear about security and survival. And so it's almost like turbocharges the three. And so the self-preservation three is the three that has the hardest time slowing down, mm-hmm. has the hardest time stopping and saying, uh, you know, this is enough, this is too much. And so I, I, I appreciate you sharing your story because it really reflects how how much you hold on to that working and that that what got you the good stuff, what got you the rewards of the recognition, uh, because it's just so hard to let go of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So Patrick, how did you discover yourself as a three and how do you see it playing out in your life? Um, so I'm uh, extremely new to Enneagram actually. Mm-hmm. So, so being on this panel is kind of forcing me to confront my fear of being the least knowledgeable person about something in the room. <laughs> Um, but I moved into a house, uh, in Berkeley of people who were all very familiar with, uh, Enneagram. And, uh, the first meal I cooked for like the house involved this one dessert that had like multiple components that each took had multiple components to it. And they all walked into the room and they were like, oh, you're a three. So, um, but in kind of exploring like what being a three means, uh, I realized that like as a, I grew up in a household with a parent with substance abuse issues and an enabler uh, as another parent. Uh, And I was always the like emotional child around that. um, Whereas my four other siblings were very, um, they were much better at repressing their emotions around it. Mm. So I was always the one called out for being emotional. Uh, so that I struggled with that. Uh, I There was this feeling of um, being devalued because of that. Mm. And then I realized that school was one a way that I could um, gain a lot of praise because I was very good at it and uh, an activity that I could channel all of my emotions into. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of just bull, uh, bulldozed through my academics um, and succeeded with that uh, into college, into graduate uh, master's program and PhD program where I'm at now. Uh, but uh, not a lot of slowing down. Uh, and I realized, so in moving here, I realized I was confronting this fear of being in a new area surrounded by people I had didn't know, um, kind of socializing myself to that circle uh, and trying to perform to be the smart, interesting, funny person that people would want to connect with. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I was talking to a friend who he's uh, he did this out of being a two, but he was describing this exhaustion from always performing to be funny, to be confident, to be intelligent for other people. And as he was describing this, I realized that I was like crying as he was talking about this process because I never realized how much work I was doing unconsciously to perform, to meet the expectations of other people. Uh, And after that, the day after that, I realized I couldn't 
really connect with the people around me um, mm. because I didn't know how to connect with people without performing. And I was so exhausted mm. by performing that I just couldn't do it. Mm. Um, but slowly kind of came back to it uh, by what I thought was a more authentic way of connecting. But it was a lot of work to saying, like, how do I interact with human beings um, while not trying to show off? Uh, mm. Yeah. And do you have a sense of, do you relate to that piece of creating an image or being aware of an image and how people view you? Yes. Um, I, it's, depending on the setting, I always want to be the person that I think they will be impressed by. Mm. Um, and I, there was a moment where two friends were like taught, like somehow my personality was coming up and I, it seems so strange to me because that two people could perceive the same individual. Um, because I, like, I realized that I had no sense of like who I am. So I was like, I don't know how anyone can see me because I have no idea who I am in a sense. Right. Right. And sexual threes can be the most disconnected from themselves of any of the, any, of any of the 27 types. Uh, because there, there is so much outer focus and wanting to be pleasing and attract people, both like you're saying in terms of being impressive, but also supportive of others, like genuinely supportive of others. Like they'll work in support of others instead of their own self-aggrandizement, let's say. Yeah. yeah. Um, that is something I have to work uh, through a lot is to be there for others while not enjoying being the person who can be there for you, who has the skills to help you with something um, and just allow myself to be there for someone without any kind of reward attached to that. Uh, uh-huh. Without doing <laughs> yes, yeah. something, just or, being yeah. a friend, let's say, as opposed to sort of earning what you do by or earning being a friend through doing something for them. Yeah. Yeah. Or having the status to be able to help you in a particular uh, way. Having the status, yeah, yeah. So no, notice that three, sexual three especially will sound a lot like two, but it's a little more about status and a little more about performance, like you're hearing in his language even, and less about that personal connection or the pride of giving or the control that comes from giving and more about the, the role of supporter in, that, and, in a certain way, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Kimmy, can you tell us how you saw yourself as a three, found your type as three, and how you see it playing out in your life? So when I first was introduced to the Enneagram, uh, I thought I was a social one because I have issues with being in a social group, but at the same time feeling really repressed about a lot of anger at work and, and people's personalities. Um, and I went to um, SOT, which is a module that uh, Claudio Naranjo um, does. And um, he doesn't, he didn't say anything, but the, the second module I went to, he started saying, you know, it's strange you think you're a social one because you smile a lot. Why is it that you smile? And it's really true because you must smile for something. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I do smile a lot. Uh, so it's uh, always about this engaging with the other, really trying to sense what is it that you want to see from me and, um, and then sensing whether I can really match up to that image. Um, and so that was kind of like the beginning of my search or exploration of what, like, who am I or, or how, how am I? 
And um, I think a good example, um, I'm going to take an example from this autobiography that I had to write for these modules. Um, basically, you write an autobiography about your emotional uh, experience throughout life. And the anecdotes from those kind of gives you an idea of um, times in your life where it's been um, an indicator of who you are. And um, so in high school, I took a chemistry honor, a very uh, strange, ab abstract uh, course for me. And I did well, a B. And then a couple of years later, you had the chance to do like an AP course. So I took that and I even passed the class uh, or the AP. So you don't have to take it in college. But then I went to college and I was like, mm, well, you know, I didn't really learn it completely. Uh, so maybe I'll do it again. And this time I did it again and I was setting the curve. And really at this point, I was like, yes, this is me. Like, you know, like now I really know it because I'm setting the curve because I'm sort of like the standard of what uh, uh, the class should be based on. And, um, <laughs> and, and this sort of like... Um, identification of how I want to be seen. So throughout my life, there's this conflict of how do I, uh, how do I expect myself to be and perhaps sometimes not meeting up to that expectation and really feeling crushed about the fact that I'm not uh, how I expect myself to be. Um, and then after uh, college, you know, because uh, my family has always raised me in a, in a way where money wasn't uh, a big um, ideal, but more about exploration, discovery, art. Um, I really thought maybe I could become a researcher. And uh, even though I was, you know, setting curves on all these tests and all these courses, I came out into the world realizing that I, I didn't have the brain for it and I wasn't going to be a top-notch researcher. Um, and if I wanted to stay in the field, I would have to work so hard, but yet be <coughs> mediocre almost. And I wasn't okay with being mediocre. <laughs> so... Um, so I, I left the research field and I became a pharmacist instead because I thought that uh, I would be a great pharmacist, uh, an excellent pharmacist, and I would have security, uh, financial security, and, uh, you know, a very respected field. Um, but I left the dream of becoming a researcher because, um, well, I don't know if it's really a dream because it's, I thought it was a great ideal to have to sort of... Uh, discovery, discovering. And so this wanting to be something great um, and then kind of seeking out to find that greatness in myself, but oftentimes not meeting that expectation. And it sounds like that was something you identified with in your family. Like there was, you were picking up something in your family that what's desirable is to be this explorer, this discoverer. Yes. And yet when you got closer to that, you felt like, well, I'm not going to be the best at this. Yes. And so it was sort of like, that's not okay. Yeah. And so I need to find something else. Right. Is that right? Because yeah. a real researcher would be more interested in the science and what is so beautiful about this mo molecule that's binding to this other molecule. I wasn't interested in that beauty. I, some of it was beautiful, but I was thinking of more the bigger picture of, will I be this great person who uh, is leading the field in, in that area? Right, 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 right. And just like, and, yes, you want to be, want to be able to be the best. And so what, so two's 
As twos avoid rejection, threes avoid failure. <laughs> um, and I've heard threes say that they can, a three told me once I can smell failure a mile away <laughs> and take another route. Yes. So it's almost like that's what the story you're telling. It's like, yes. I smell, ooh, I don't know if that will, I'll be the big winner in that. So maybe I should take another route. Was yeah. it a little bit like that? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like to try new things that I don't think I'm good at. Yes. Um, I'm good at a lot of things though, but I like to be <laughs> yeah, the best. Sure you are. <laughs> There's plenty to choose from. <laughs> yes, that's great. And that's one great. other thing about cars, which I thought was so funny, is um, you know I really want a Mini Cooper, uh, but it looks so flashy, and you know, and I hear that the engines don't work very well after some certain number of years. So I have an Impreza, a Subaru Impreza, which is just as small and cute, but very practical and very zippy and very functional and mm. practicality and just. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, practicality is important. Getting the job done. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. So, Dave, how did, how how did you find yourself as a three, and how do you see it playing out in your life? It's hard to know where to start, really. Um, <laughs> 20 or 25 years ago, uh, my life shifted. You know, a marriage ended. My dad died. Um, I went back to I went to graduate school, and one of my early teachers, in doing an enneagram training, said, "Fill in this sentence: I am what I blank." And I said, "Well, I am what I do." Because I am. Um, I define myself by my work. And I've always defined myself as being successful in my work. Because if you define me as successful, clearly I'm successful. And clearly this is the path. I'm on the right path. Because, look, I view it as a, as a success. And that's kind of the point. Um, <laughs> so mom was a one and dad was a nine so around my house there was a right way and a wrong way to do things and um I learned very early on that there's a right way to mow the lawn there's a right way to take out the garbage you're listening to a TNS episode from the Enneagram Panel Workshop Series with Beatrice Chestnut and host Michael Lerner. Now, interestingly, I didn't have to do it perfectly like my mother. I just had to do it well enough to where I was praised for it. Mm. And to this day, whatever I do, I have to do well enough so that you tell me I'm great for having done it uh, that well. It's, Good job, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so I'll I'll stop talking as soon as you people start applauding. I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, throughout uh, grade school. Uh, I was a success at home, and I was really successful in school because I had to be, uh, because that level of success was expected at home, and God forbid I shouldn't uh, have the image of a good student. But then when things become more social, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, 
uh, I had to change in order to be viewed as successful. And one of the things I could do in high school was I could hang with the dopers and I could hang with the jocks and I could hang with the faculty. I used to go stamp my own cut slips in the attendance office. <laughs> Morning, Marianne. <laughs> um, because I had that ability to shapeshift that we've been talking about. Um, so I'm going to stop. So can you tell us, I know that you identify as a sexual three. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the way the sexual three focuses a lot on supporting others' success yeah. and almost succeeds through helping others and not it's not just about your own success. Right, yeah, and I should probably uh, share the story about how I found out I was a sexual six because I'd love sexual to tell three. This, right, sexual three because uh, I, I love the story. Uh, now, earlier, B said she, she likes sports. She, she's a real Giants fan. She's a San Francisco Giants fan through and through. And that's not just about liking sports or uh, trying to uh, make somebody else like her for liking sports. She's a Giants fan. So uh, every couple of years, at least, we try to go to a game together. And we were at this game several years ago. And she said, so how are you? And two hours later, I finished talking, and <laughs> it was about the seventh inning. And I said, B, I'm struggling to figure out my, my subtype. And B said, Dave, you are the poster child for one-to-one -one subtype, and here's why. She said, I asked you to talk about how you are. She said, you didn't talk about you at all. You talked about, you talked for 10 minutes about your mom. You talked to 10 minutes for 10 minutes about your mentor. You talked for 10 minutes about your wife. You talked for 10 minutes about this person, that person, the other person, one story at a time. And that made that one-to-one -one orientation so clear to me. Yeah. Um, and the way it manifests now in, in my life uh, is I finally, like four careers into it, figured out that uh, the, the image that really is me is the person who helps others to succeed and is able to take great joy in that. Um, and I found it before I landed in the hospital, um, although it was tumultuous, uh, because suddenly you have to feel all those feelings that you haven't felt for a long time. Um, but I, I consider myself very lucky. You know, I have a lot of, uh, I do a lot of different things, but one of, one of which is teach grads, graduate school. So uh, mentoring my students is very important to me and helping them to be successful. And the reason this didn't work in my previous career is because I, take, I took it very personally when they failed, right? That wasn't about them, that was about me. I must have failed because they suck. <laughs> 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 so yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about the feelings piece about how you normally relate to feelings and when they 
burst through. God, do I have to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Feelings are not aerodynamic. I love that. Um, I am a deeply emotional human being. I sobbed when Bing Bong died uh, in Inside Out, right? Um, mm. I, and that yeah. remind us who that character was? For people uh, that who- character was the, the imaginary childhood friend mm-hmm. of the, the main character in the, mm-hmm. in the show, the little girl in the show. And, you know, we all lose that imaginary friend at some point. It was very pointed the way that was done in that show. I love that movie. My favorite movie, Inside Out. Um, And I would much rather deny my emotions in the interest of being expedient and getting stuff done. Because I've always, I'd, I'd love that. Popped out of the womb with a to-do list. <laughs> that was beautiful. Um, uh, and yet, the here's there's a guy named Michael Doyle. Uh, Doyle and Strauss, they wrote a book about how to make meetings work. And I met Michael. He's gone now, God rest his soul. But he came in and taught a class when I was in graduate school. And I can't remember what we were talking about, but he's got a whole cohort of graduate students. And whatever we were talking about, he cried. Hmm. And I was really blown away by that. And we questioned that, you know, why are you crying? And, well, I was de- I'm deeply touched by the topic. And I said, no, that's not what I meant. Why are you crying here? And he said, I've spent a lot of time working on getting in touch with my emotions. And he said, I've learned that there's no percentage in holding it back. And I've never forgotten that. He was just such a great model for me to be able to be more transparent. This is a lifelong battle. uh, More transparent about my feelings. What does that mean, percentage? There's no percentage in it. There's uh, not enough of a return on investment. There's, it's not worth holding back. And the cost mm. of uh, uh, showing uh, one's emotions isn't that high. And there's a great payback. And a cost to holding them back, perhaps. Yeah, the cost of holding them back is huge. So he was one of my early mentors, uh, I should stop. And by the way, threes really benefit when they grow by having a role model. Right. Yeah. Right. And my role model and mentor is a, a, a nine um, who, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So maybe starting with Wendy again, um, what, what has helped you to see these three patterns and grow beyond them? You already said a little bit about this in terms of the illness and sort of getting stopped. Uh, since then, sort of what, what have you become aware of? What has helped you to become more aware of these patterns? It is a never-ending process. And, um, you know, I follow the Helen Palmer model of 
stop, observe, press the pause button, identify the feelings that come up, process the feelings, determine whether or not, whether or not I'm telling a story about the feelings, and try and do this in real time so that we're not wasting time while we're processing the feelings. I mean, it's hilarious, mm-hmm. right? It's this kind of back and forth, back and forth. But on my growth path, um, I have tried it all. I've tried meditation. I've tried walking meditation. I've tried labyrinths. I've done Akashic record work. I've, you know, done um, past life regressions. I've, I mean, I have really done the whole, not the whole, but I've certainly been committed to my own spiritual growth. Um, now tell me this. It's, yeah. I've been told by threes that sometimes when they do spiritual work, let's say do meditation, they do it, right? Which actually doesn't help them. Like, right. and again, I'm not saying that's the way you've done it, but but uh, yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I I was in this um, meditation and I was asking the prayer. Um, what do I need to do at this point in my life? This was after the 2008 experience to, um, you know, to, to just enjoy this path that I'm on, to enjoy the journey of life. And what I heard really clearly from up above or wherever it came from was just stop producing, just be. And I thought, oh my God, that's profound. And I went and got my notebook out and I wrote a task list for how to be. Yes. Right? And then I got done with the task list and I was laughing hysterically because I thought, okay, I think I could just got the joke, right? <laughs> and yes. so, yes. and what's true, when, what I experienced when I started down this path was so much grief mm. and so much sadness that almost, I mean, I felt like I was going to be annihilated by that emotion because really what came up was the shame of having spent so much time acting in these roles and feeling like I had spent so much effort on this and it had no meaning for me. And it was deeply and profoundly just sad And just dealing with that emotion in and of itself, and then I was listening to Jill uh, Bolte Taylor, Jill Taylor, uh, my stroke of insight, and she talked about how, from a neurobiological standpoint, we're wired to process emotion in 90 seconds. That from the moment the you know the thought comes in, the emotion comes in, we feel that you know the cortisol comes up, and blah blah blah. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I don't have to hang on to this grief or the mm. sadness, it's not going to annihilate me. And I, and all of a sudden it became one of those things where I really could sit with that emotion, see it go through, not make any judgment about it, let it go. And that has been truly for me the most profoundly helpful thing about my own growth path is recognizing that the emotions that come up pass through, mm. that they, they don't persist unless I hold on to them and tell a story about them. Um, and today I feel so much less like a three. Mm. I spent a lot of time in six. I spent a lot of time in nine. Um, I, I am blessed to be married to a six who oftentimes will, um, ask me, you know, to consider a different point of view. And in the past, what I would do is I would just sort of move right through him because I would, I was like, okay, no, I've got this, right? I'm 
And now I literally stop and connect with him instead of doing what the instinct to do is, which is to clean the kitty litter box or to do whatever, you know, get the oil changed in the car. So now it's more about what is coming up in this moment Mm. that is asking for my attention and can I be okay with that? And for me, that has been the most helpful thing mm-hmm. because just sitting there and contemplating my feelings or whatever, it doesn't work for me. I don't know what, what's true for you guys, but I, I have to do something that allows me to process that emotion in a way that doesn't destroy me. Right, because it sounds like there's almost fear of the emotions, fear yeah. that it, they'll destroy me or they'll slow me down or I won't be able to do what I need to do if they come up. Is that... Yeah, it's fear that I don't have the capacity to handle that. And it's also the image of that grief-stricken person, Mm, right? So it's it's the image of I'm falling apart here Uh, and uh, and I can't fall apart. I need to be together. I need need to be together. And there's nobody underneath me uh, to pick me up. And that's the other myth that I've had to work on is that, in fact, I'm surrounded by people who would love to pick me up if I fell apart. Yes. Three sometimes believe if they don't do it, nothing, it won't happen. And everything around them will fall apart if they don't keep keep doing what they're doing. And it's sometimes hard to let people support you, especially for the self-pres three. It's like you have to do everything. It's You're the one that provides security. Uh, and it's hard to be vulnerable and depend on somebody else to help you. That is the hardest lesson, truly, for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's depending on others. Yeah. Can I share, well, ask you to share. One time you told me just a great example. You said you started to feel some grief about your father, mm-hmm. and then you immediately had the thought, I need to do the laundry. Yes. Is that how it happened? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, in fact, that's kind of a consistent tell for me is that I can feel now in my body where the grief is coming from. I can feel it welling from the, the kind of the middle of my solar plexus up into my throat. And when I feel that constriction in my throat, that's usually the tell that I'm feeling grief or sadness. Dave's nodding his head. <laughs> and, and then I have to think about, okay, so what was the thought that just came in a moment ago? And the thought is oftentimes around um, the, the loss of my father, the loss of my dog, something that I am really afraid of. Um, the fires burning down my home, uh, my husband getting in an accident. I make my husband now text me when he's done with a bike ride so that I know that he's safe. And it's so that I can assuage that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of the pieces of, of growth that's been great is just mm-hmm. being able to, to feel that the, where it is in my body, yeah. the somatic piece of it right. is huge. Um, because oftentimes I think for me, I, a feeling can, you know, particularly feeling I don't want to feel, <laughs> there yeah. it went, right? Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, right behind it is usually the, the, the feeling will come up and then I'm like, okay, now I got to take care of what's right in front of me. So um, even just sitting down and knowing that um, I've got the sensation coming up, I can feel myself getting out of my chair and getting going to go do something mm-hmm. in the moment that I'm feeling that that sense yes. of whatever that uncomfortable emotion is, and it can be anything. Right. So that sounds like on the path to growth, that's that's the real edge is to be self-observing. Okay, 
I had this impulse to go do something and something just, just a feeling just started bubbling up, which motivated that, this urge to action. I, can I slow that down a little bit and notice whether it's in my body or in my heart, like what's bubbling up that I might attend to or and slow down and feel as opposed to go, go do something. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Mm-hmm. Patrick, what's, what's helped you to become more aware of these things and to grow? Um, one easy tell for me is I always fly, find that I'm clenching my jaw in certain mm-hmm. situations where I'm just like, I, and then I know I'm like, you are working so hard to control this situation, how people are perceiving you in this moment. Um, so it's, whenever I do that, I'm like, how can I like, l- just like let go, let this moment unfold how it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times that turns into me just like not speaking in a situation especially in a group scenario just kind of letting everyone be uh and then being in that uh which can, is harder than it sounds for a three right because again there can be this sense of like if i don't do it no one will uh yeah yeah um it's difficult because going home i still find that like my success is almost a lightning rod for the dysfunction. Um, Can you explain what you mean by that? That, like, at least there's you being successful because everything else is kind of falling apart. And I'm like, oh, Mm. if I am not, there's no stability. Yes, Um, yes. Again, it's like if I don't do, everything will fall apart. And and the high side of three, which is sometimes mm -hmm. called hope, is... Is that the it, Almas describes it as the sure, the sure feeling uh, that things will work out even with no effort on your part. Mm-hmm. You know, the knowing that everything will work and things will happen without you having to be the one to do everything. It has also helped. Uh, I started dating a four who. Um one of the first dates we had, he was like, why are you working so hard to like control the situation? Um, and then like has implicitly and explicitly just given me the space to like be kind of a mess in a moment uh, mm-hmm. and feel everything I need to feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which has been really good for me. <laughs> right. So yeah. allowing feelings yeah. a little bit like for the twos as well, allowing yourself to be with feelings and having, getting used to the fact that that's okay. Yeah. And then uh, lastly, I think because there's so many things I do to garner respect um, that I've tried to do those things. But when I'm completely alone and no one knows I'm doing it, because I do enjoy um, like cooking and writing. Uh, so it kind of re-socializes me to enjoying them for their their own worth and not because someone is saying like, great Uh, job. Right, right, right. Doing something for the intrinsic joy of doing it as opposed to how it'll make people see you in a positive light or give you a compliment or recognize you because it's a lot about recognition for a three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Kimmy, what what kinds of things have helped you to be more aware of these patterns and also to grow? Um, so I, I'm not exactly a very verbal person. I, I like a lot of expression through the body and, and through music. Um, so, um, lately I've been noticing a lot of sort of control, like how Wendy also describes about how, how much clenching there is in the body and, and just like tensing everywhere and starting to notice when, when do I have that tension in my body and, and that control that need, that need to be a certain way um, and just um, 
tuning into my own body and not being so affected by what I want to show everybody. Um, so that's one thing. And the second is um, because I'm so affected by other people and I really like to be around one-on-one -on -one situation and I'm really engaging and I like the other person, um, but it pulls so much of my energy out that um, I will actually a lot time for myself, um, putting on my calendar that, you know, this week I need to spend more and not going out this evening uh, to be with other people so that I can be a little bit more in tune with um, just my body or whatever it is that I want to do or just spending time with myself. Um, so those are two. When you are with other people, is it easy to focus on what's happening in the moment with them? Or do you find you get pulled away by your to-do list? Or what, what's, what, what are relationships like for you? Um, I'm pretty in tune with other people when I'm, I'm with somebody. Usually I'm really good and one-on-one -on -one and I really enjoy that. I'm almost like my whole soul is like halfway out of my body towards that person. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm not really thinking about other mm -hmm. things when I'm with you people. Can, you can really focus and yeah. you don't find that work gets in the way of relationship. You can sort of do both. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm, when I'm mm -hmm. with that person, I tend to be mm -hmm. quite in the moment with, with them. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. yeah. And again, threes are heart types. And so relationships are a big focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the question? <laughs> no, I, I was just rocked back by when I'm with another person, my entire soul is halfway out to that mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean... I if love I like that. that. If I like them. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that was yeah. really touching. I, yeah. You know, we're, we get in our own way a lot um, because we're so task-oriented that uh, we often appear uncaring. Um, a word that I often use to self-describe is uh, driven. And that's like a clue. That's like a flag uh, that there's a three in there because we we approach tasks, goals, success with blinders on. And so I'm trying to think of exactly how you framed this question. Well, part of it is like what helps you be more self-aware? Yeah. You know, what helps you grow out of these patterns right. by noticing them. Right. Uh, well, what I notice these patterns by the bodies in my wake. Uh. Um, I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Collateral damage. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's it collateral said that damage. Sometimes threes are so focused on the goal yeah. that they'll down. sort of run over or get around or ignore or piss off or hurt anyone who's in your way between you and your goal. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And Often, what I've found is that it's not the people that are in my way, it's their feelings. <laughs> so, you know, dealing with the feelings, you know. So just do like you might avoid your own feelings, you kind of want to avoid other people's feelings. Right. right. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> And again, I think that's the operative phrase. There's not time for that. Right. I've often heard threes say something like, feelings aren't productive. They're not. And they actually get in the way of right. productivity. Right. Yeah. Why would you want to bother with that icky stuff? 
Um, and yet. And yet. <laughs> if you don't, when I, when I was behaving that way, and I still do sometimes, you know, it's a process. Uh, but when I was behaving that way exclusively, I found that I would reach a goal, be successful, be perceived as being successful, and not be happy, and none of the people along the way were happy. And I would repeat that over and over and over again until finally I said, screw this. Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. And this was around 25 years ago, as I said, in the same um, six-year period, I went back to graduate school, uh, uh, lost my father, uh, he died, so that I had nothing to do with that. Um, my, my, my first marriage ended, and oh, by the way, uh, I got sober after having drunk, uh, being a, a, an alcoholic drinker for 25 years, um, and I went back to church, and I, you know, it was a whole transformation. The whole thing changed. Uh, not all my behaviors changed at once, but my orientation did. And uh, I started taking into account some of the uh, bodies in my wake. And I, I started pursuing these goals and the success and what you think of me and all that stuff in a way where my happiness really played into it too. And what I discovered was the less I cared, the happier I was, and the better I treated you, and the better I treated me, and the more I was aware of how I felt. Um, there, there was this sense of not being attached. There, until I was able to let go of trying to force control, I really had no control. Um, Huh? The less you cared about. The less I cared about image, the less I cared about success, the less I cared about mm -hmm. what you wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, and it sounds callous, mm -hmm. but it was very freeing. And and old habits die hard, you know. I really to this day uh mistreat people. My wife's gonna be on the panel next time and she can <laughs> tell you stories. But um <laughs> which, which, right, loved, yes. which proves the point. Yes. Thank you, darling. <laughs> yes. And are you more emotional now? Yeah, I would think so. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll have to check with my wife. Clearly. <laughs> no, I. I've always been emotional. But I never really knew where it came from. Mm. And uh, I'd always have to stuff it because I couldn't explain it. And now I don't have a lot of judgment around that. It just is. And uh, yeah, it's, mm. yeah. 
You're listening to a TNS episode from the Enneagram Panel Workshop Series with Beatrice Chestnut and host Michael Lerner. Okay. Anything I haven't asked you about that feels like it might be important to say about your t- about three or anything? Nothing arising? Okay, well, uh, maybe... Oh, 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 Dave yeah, said yes. Oh, oh, I thought... Yeah. Uh, yes. So when you were saying... Um, Go against the arrow first. Yes, six. Six. I was just going to talk about that, so perfect. I have found it really useful recently when I'm at my worst to ask myself the question, what am I afraid of? Mm, Yes. Because if I can figure out what I'm afraid of, then I can behave in a more down-to-earth collaborative way. So you named something earlier that uh, I've found great value in doing and not knowing that I was doing that thing. Hmm. Um, I had one other thing. So uh, the Richmond Bridge was closed for an hour Thursday morning because of concrete falling off the upper deck and I was stuck in the backup. Mm. I got a lot of work done. <laughs> and when when something is just absolutely uncontrollable, uh, there's there's nothing to rage against. So I can accept it. I got out. We were t- people were talking to each other. How often do you have a chance to walk around the Richmond, Richmond Bridge, Bridge on the bridge? Know? So. Uh, right. Yeah, but the, if there was anything I could have done about it, I'd be doing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I really find that spending time alone is really helpful for these emotions to come mm-hmm. out because mm-hmm. uh, you're talking about fear. You know, um, I was planning this uh, event last year and uh, there were moments where I really felt a lot of fear because I had to make so many decisions and I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. And I literally would spend hours at home just kind of like shaking in fear. like like, And, you know, I can't really show that in front of other people. And so all these anxiety, all these emotion, it's helpful to have a space for that because maybe you yourself can can accept that, and but you don't want other people to see it, at least for three. Um, so spending time alone has been really helpful, you know, feeling anger, feeling sadness, crying for hours. It's okay <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in your own space, um, at least for right now. So. Yeah, yeah. I have to watch Love Actually at least once a year. <laughs> Is that just to reconnect with the emotions? Just just to get the emotions out. Great, 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 good. So, just to say a little bit more about the arrow movements. So, yes, when three goes to six first, it's about slowing down to get in touch with fear, to get in touch with um, things that they sometimes don't allow space for, you know, concerns, what could go wrong, questioning. Sometimes it's like the goal is right there and there's no question. It's really all forward movement as quickly as possible. They don't like to be slowed down. So in order, slowing down, checking in with other people, what problems are I might, might I be overlooking because I'm just really headed in this direction and going quickly. Um, the other thing is then going to nine. Um, what, can you say anything about, anyone want to say anything about what's go, what going to nine is like for you? That's, again, the path of, real, of growth, uh, the, sometimes called the stress point. I think of nine as hanging out my pajamas and eating popcorn. Yes. 
Yes, it's like, <laughs> it's I mean, just in a way, relaxation. it's allowing yourself yeah. to be and not just do. So David Daniels used to oh. say that, um, that threes are human doings and not human beings, and they need to learn to just be. And nines are really good at hanging out and just being, and also connecting more to the people around them, tuning into the creating harmony and relationships, and not just kind of doing their own thing. Anything else anyone wants to say about that? I do nine a lot these days. It always, I like the description because nine always feels like jammies and popcorn and potato chips and movies and <laughs> letting things unfold and just being. I do a lot of that these days. I don't necessarily do it without some level of negative self-talk. Mm. So it's a challenge to allow yourself to just be. It is, because I've got so many things to do. You want to hear about my to-do list? <laughs> and do you, like, do you always check things off the to-do list? Sometimes I'll write things on the list that I've already done just so I can check them off. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think other types keep to-do lists, but threes are the only ones I've heard of that actually like check everything off and even will put something on to check it off. That And there's a great feeling of satisfaction. Absolutely. <laughs> she has one in her purse. She even takes it with her. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. 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 Say it. What is it? I was yeah. saying writing a to-do list alone just feels so good. You love yeah. it. Yeah. It even feels just, good yeah. to write it it's out. It's a sense of accomplishment, yeah. Yes. But I, I'm with Dave on the, the nine thing because um, about two years ago, I made a decision that I wasn't going to do anything that required a huge amount of effort because I had become so exhausted. And um, I just wanted to enjoy my life at this point and just see what came up. And um, I decided that I was only going to do things if I was invited to do them, not because I had issued the invitation. Oh. And uh, and just creating that space. First of all, just creating that space. To not be was, the active person who's initiating something, but allow yourself to almost receive and be more. So um, guess what's happened? What? <laughs> I have more invitations than I know what to do ah. with. So that I didn't expect, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden, because I used to say, well, I can't do that because I've got this, 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 and this. And now people are inviting me, and I'm like going, oh, yeah, I can do that. Sure, I can do that. Sure, I can do that. And now I'm exhausted in the other direction. <laughs> so, right, so. right, right. And everything, that's the thing, the tricky thing about twos, especially on the self-development, I mean, threes, especially on the self-development path, path is everything can turn into doing, right? Oh, right? Like meditating can be taking a walk or meditating can be doing meditation or like going out, having an active social life can be doing that. Going on vacation can involve doing and tasks. Is that right? Well, so vacations now my rule is I book the hotel, I book the flights. And um, so I generally know where we're going, where we're staying and how to get there. And that's it. Ah. So this is a growth. Okay, that's a not exactly true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Usually ah. there's a bicycle involved. Ah, okay. But, so some sort of bike trip will be planned. But that's different than what I used to do, which was every, okay, so now we're doing the Louvre. And if we have time, then we're going to the Rodin Museum. And if we have time, then we're going to go uh, to this cool little cafe, right, to hang out with the beautiful people. <laughs> Looking beautiful, or yeah. maybe not. But, right. But no, I don't. I don't script it in the anymore. Way. So that's a developmental 
Steph, yes. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes. But it feels like it's moving in yes. the right direction. Okay. All right. So uh, I want to open it up to questions. So I first want to ask Michael if you have any comments or questions. Again, a wonderful panel. Um, B, I wanted to ask you, you, you spoke of the arrows uh, to six and nine. Is there a broader significance of the three cardinal points, um, uh, nine, three, six, however you define it, as opposed to, are there different qualities to the three cardinal points as opposed to the other points? Um, there are in that it's, it's thought that each, each triad, uh, the two points surrounding the core point are like variations on that main point. So two and four would be variations of three. Five and seven would be variations of six. I also heard there's, there's something about um, each type, um, and I'm not going to remember this now. It's not that threes aren't emotional. It's that they can use it externally, sort of in terms of reading a room, but not it for themselves internally, almost. Um, and it's there's something similar with the nine and the six. So there are certain aspects of the core points that are distinctive uh, with respect to the rest of the points. Yeah. And is there, uh, but the arrows that connect all the points, um, the law of seven as opposed to the law of three. Do mm -hmm. I have that right? Yeah. Um, uh, you spoke of one as creation and the other as uh, process. Sequence. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Could you could you elaborate on that distinction a little more? Sure. So uh, the law of seven is about it's the idea that that there are seven steps required in, to complete any process. Right. And. Uh, it's like the musical scale. Right. It'd be a good example of that. Um, the law of three is the law of creation. Now, when we put them together, one of the traits of the process enneagram is we can almost see it as a, a steps in a process of self-development. So, in the Sufi tradition, they have a lot to say about what one means, and one at one as a spiritual station. So, not the type at all, but just a point in development. That's the point when we're absolutely in personality and coming from instinct. So, we are completely blind to the fact that we are identified with personality and everything's fine. We think everything, because we're in personality, there's no problems, because we're just operating in personality and just trying to do our thing. Uh, but when we move to two, not as a type, but as a point in development, that's the next stage in a process where we get more conscious, a little bit more conscious. We start to be aware that things aren't quite right. You know, a little bit like we've heard people on the panels say of like, actually, this coping strategy isn't completely working and more conscious suffering comes in, um, more desire to be on a growth path. Uh, more awareness of the passion. All of these things happen in this move. Now, the three, type point three, not type three, is not the next spiritual station. The next spiritual station is point four. That's the third step in the process. Point three, at three, it's a shock point. And three and six are shock points. And that means something else needs to come in from the outside in order to keep the process going. Now, again, this could be a whole day-long lecture in itself. It's kind of complex. But that just gives you a little bit of a flavor into this, that, that these are also a map of process and that, um, and that these are uh, 
you know, that has a lot of significance in terms of human development. Could you, could you just walk us briefly through the rest? You got us to three, even though it's complicated. Could you just walk us through the rest of the points? It, that is not in my book. Um, so at four, we get in touch with the higher virtue. Yeah. Um, we get in touch with more loneliness. Uh, we get more in touch with um, the fact that we are insignificant in the big scheme of things. We aren't the center of the universe like we thought we were. Um, on the Enneagram model, between four and five, there's a gap, and that signifies a kind of dark night of the soul mm -hmm. um, that we all must go through to go from being aware of the higher virtue at that at the four point, the third spiritual station, until we get to five, where we get in touch with the higher mental center and the holy ideas. But that dark ocean, uh, the dark night of the soul, it's a kind of, it's Persephone's world, it's going into the underworld. Uh, it's a kind of, uh, it signifies a kind of need to face the shadow. And this is why that gap at the bottom of the Enneagram is very important, uh, very significant. Uh, and it's a kind, it's not necessarily, some people think it's a completely negative experience. It's more a, like a, a losing ego, a being deconstructed. Now it's scary. There's like an existential fear that comes up because you're losing your, all, all your defenses. You're letting go of your defenses, but it's a positive in terms of, you know, higher growth. Now, as you come out of that, uh, kind of dark. Oh, by the way, this is an interesting thing. So we talked about the Odyssey and how uh, it's a it's a metaphor, a metaphorical story of coming home to the true self. And Odysseus, after the Trojan War, visits these nine lands that he visits. That each of the nine lands uh, matches the themes match perfectly the nine Enneagram types, and he faces these challenges. And he visits them in order, nine counterclockwise. Um, if you look at the exact center of the Odyssey, the exact, like you count up all the lines and you look at the exact center of the whole poem, where is he? In the underworld, he's in Hades. He goes and visits the underworld between four and five, between the sirens, uh, between the uh, Hermes and the sirens. Um, he literally goes to the underworld and talks to a lot of spirits as part of his journey forward. So it, that's it's there too, you know, that we must, and it's a little bit like the acorn metaphor I use in the complete Enneagram about how we must break open the shell so that the oak tree can emerge. We need to allow our person to break down if we are to go to a higher place. Now, on the left side of the Enneagram, in terms of the spiritual stations, at five, which is the fourth spiritual station, because three is a shock point, uh, where something else comes from the inside. And by the way, that thing coming from the outside can either be a higher force that moves us forward or a lower force that moves us backwards. Right? So we remember, we're always going forward and backward in the spiritual journey. It's not linear necessarily. So if we, if at that shock point, we get a bad influence and we are not open to a higher influence, we're not doing the spiritual work to like praying or whatever it might be that invites a, a positive influence, being just being self-aware, for instance, the lower kind of thing opens up and something negative comes in, which can be just habit or going back into sort of a negative talk, self-talk, we go back down. Um, so if we go up to five, that's where we out, out, coming out of the dark night of the soul, the Persephone's world, the underworld. Uh, we get in touch with the higher mental center and the, uh, the holy ideas in the Enneagram. 
Um, now, by the way, there's also things that go along with all these things that I will not be able to remember. And by the way, my teaching partner, Uranio Pius, he's the specialist in this particular teaching. Uh, he studied it deeply because uh, he was part of a Sufi path for a long time. Um, so he knows it better than I do. But things like getting in touch with metaphor, uh, images happens at four, geometric shapes and different things, get in, uh, sacred geometry we get in touch with at these higher stations. Then six is another kind of shock point. Again, something else. Usually you meet a spiritual teacher or something higher brings you forward. Now, seven, eight, and nine are... Um, seven and eight aren't really talked about a lot by these spiritual teachers who teach this process Enneagram because none of us are really going to maybe be there in this lifetime. We're lucky if we get to five. Um, now, the saints and the enlightened ones, enlightenment comes at six. I mean, these really higher states. Uh, but it also, this, this whole map also is uh, symbolic of the fa fact that the center of the Enneagram is point zero, pointing up uh, to God. Um, and as we get born, we start there and we come out at nine and we go the other way on the, way, on the path down. Um, and so in a way, we can think of the Enneagram as a sphere and almost a spiraling up uh, from an evolving pole to a devolving pole. It's, and when you're going uh, clockwise, there's a kind of... Uh, ascent in terms of spiritual development. And when you go down, it's a kind of uh, falling down. Thank you. Questions for threes. See, you did such a perfect job. No one has, you've been completely successful and proactively answering everything. Well yeah. done, Dave. Great. <laughs> you guys. Shannon. I was curious um, where resentment falls in. You know, because if it's around image and, you know, striving to meet that, I may be off, but I'm just curious. I'd like to hear where that comes up for you. And resentment's a little bit of a push-down form of anger. So resentment, anger, how does that, what, what, what kinds of things, where does that come up? Oh, oh, well, yeah. oh sure. Oh. Um, I'll say for me, so as I said, grew up um, with, a uh, parent with substance abuse issues. And then, like, all the children were kind of told to, like, we have to be, like, normal and functional for her. Um, and then, like, growing up, I was the most responsible one and everyone else was kind of a mess. So I would constantly be, like, I, like, I grew up in the same house. Um... I, like, how am I the only one who received this message? And to, like, go home and still be expected to be, like, the most responsible one, it always feels like this weight that I shouldn't have to carry. And then, like, there's the resentment of, like, why should I have ever had to hold that burden of being the higher-achieving, most functional, stable one? Um, so I do, I do have a lot of anger and resentment around that. Uh, yeah. But... It Anything else? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's, but like coming along with that, there's just been a lot of like having to let go of that. Um, there's, I think, this desire to want someone to like make that all better. Um, and for me, it's been a process of just accepting like that all happened and everyone in my family is who they are uh, and I am who I am. So. And part of what's good for threes is just allowing that feeling, yeah. you know, to get clear about that. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. You want to? anything? Um, so for threes, I feel like uh, role playing is is a uh, uh, kind of a significant thing. Where, for example, like I'm a pharmacist, or I'm in the spiritual path, or I'm meditating, and so therefore I should be a compassionate person. And to be a compassionate person, sometimes I shouldn't be feeling anger, even though someone's really really irritating and so then you repress it and then um just this feeling of uh, uh very a lot of uh, anger inside but not allowing it to to sort of come out and i do feel a lot of resentment uh in that sense um and it kind of uh, was more prominent before i recognized that it was a, a kind of a way where i was expecting myself to to be a kind of person rather than just allowing myself to be angry because humans can be angry. There is no end to my resentment. Um, when, I'm, when I'm at my worst, it's lead, follower, get out of the way. Um, and if you don't, then I'm not really interested in working with you anymore. Um, because if you're not doing one of those things, you're not helping. And if you're holding me back, I have no interest in continuing to work with you. Um, and I'm doing the best I can controlling the universe. Can't you see that? <laughs> <laughs> don't get in my way. Or control it yourself. I don't care. What about impatience? Is that? It's the same thing. <laughs> it's all the same thing. We're trying to get there, mm -hmm. right? Don't slow me down. Well, the other thing about impatience that I find is that I get really frustrated with people who don't get it. Mm. And it's kind of like, okay, what? Because you get it quickly, right? Well, so it's like standing in, in the grocery line, and I have my credit card out. I have everything <laughs> lined up. And the person in front of me, it's just dawned on them that they're actually in a checkout line. <laughs> and they've, they've got groceries still in their cart. And, you know, they haven't figured out how they're going to pay for it. So they're counting pennies. And I'm just... So now I literally have to use that as a teaching moment for myself where I go, oh, there I go again. There. Mm. And, and so um, now instead of getting angry, I say thank you. And I, I say, okay, now I get to practice my deep breathing exercises. <laughs> Full breath, count, you know. And so then, but, the, but really there's this sense of other people ought to know what they're doing, why they're there, where they need to be going, what, you know, do they not have map applications on their phone, right? I mean, so yeah. who asked the question about impatience? Are we done yet? <laughs> Okay, another question. Yeah. Um, is, it, yeah. is it a trait of the threes to their task oriented, do, 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 hit the pillow out like a light? There's like this on or totally off? No, okay. not for me. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a proof. No, we're just, we're working on a different list. So there's a, there. it's funny, I have, there's a cartoon I show sometimes when I do stuff in companies about three, and it's the first one is the the the, um, the person's at the computer, and then they're at home, like, doing something like this, and then the next one is they're sleeping, and in their dream, they're, they're doing, they're doing the same thing. We're multitasking <laughs> in our dreams. Right, right. 
Right. You want to say oh, something about I was that? Just yeah. about to say, I remember reading an article about how like there are these super successful people who just like don't seem to not need to sleep. They sleep like maybe three, four hours a night. And I remember being so jealous. Like I would <laughs> love to like be without sleep, but I'm like, I do need to, yeah. but yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. So here, here and here. Yeah. As a two, um, <clears throat> connecting on the conversation with threes, what's the connectivity with the holy ideas and you know, getting to the self-realization? What do we share? What do twos and threes share since they're right next to each other? Well, the, the holy idea for, for twos is holy will and holy freedom. And the holy ideas for, uh, for threes is holy uh, veracity, which is truth, you know, getting in touch with who you really are, and holy hope, which is this thing about I don't have to do anything and I just know that thing, everything will work out by itself. Yeah. I'm a three, and I'm interested in hearing more about relationship to the physical body, which for me has a huge amount to do with my threeness. Um, when I'm on a on a path, which is most of the time, um, I don't have a body, as far as I know. It's just all from here up. And I can spend an entire day either doing this or presenting in front of a room and being utterly unaware of the toll on the body. Um, and then collapsing, of course. And you talked about illness as being the only thing that stops you, which I've experienced. But it's also the resource, I find. It's the path back to self, and I'm wondering if that's what... You, you mean, mean being in the body is the path back to self? Being in the body, just yeah. reminding myself constantly that I've got one. Yes. Useful. Yeah. Anyone want to say anything about that? Yeah, so I can totally relate to that. And um, my practice, literally, when I'm not in my body, is to get back my body. And this is something I learned from you, which is to feel my feet on the ground and my butt in the chair. But it's taken me five years to undo the damage that I inflicted on my body by ignoring it mm. um, because I suffer from migraines and I have I had gut issues and a lot of other things. So there was a point for me where ignoring the body came at the price of not having a healthy, happy life. And that is where I think for threes in particular, the self-care becomes so important because I mean, if if I'm not literally allowing myself enough time to sleep, time for yoga, time for taking care of my dietary needs, um, then then I really can't move forward. So there's that. That's why the to do list is so important. Well, and that's and, or and the not to do list, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm, because I don't I allow myself a lot of unstructured time anymore because I need it. Mm -hmm. So how about you guys? No, what you said. Okay. You can also maybe. Um, to do something to do is uh, you know like Feldenkrais or I just took up a flute lessons again and I really found that sort of like the relaxation of the throat and the 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 chest and because you're spending time on these activities you become more aware and you're putting attention on these things that you can bring it to your daily life and it it kind of all integrates. Yeah, but that's where the nourishment comes from. Right. Right. So we do need to stop. I'm just going to say one more thing, and that is that America is a three country. Uh, and so sometimes people, uh, Naranjo says that especially that sometimes threes in the U.S. have a hard time finding their type uh, because it's so much a given that we identify with image and there's so much of the stuff that's just part of the collective unconscious that threes do. 
Um, but that, uh, and so sometimes that's why it can be uh, hard to know and hard to know who you are uh, because again, it's it's part of, and, and one last thing is that th sometimes it's hard for threes to develop because they're rewarded so much for being in personality. In our country, it's you're rewarded if you make a lot of money and you have a high status and you're very successful and you don't show a lot of emotion. Uh, and so sometimes it can be harder for threes to come to the personal growth work because uh, it's like, what's wrong? I, I coached a guy recently at a high level at a, at a financial company. He's making a lot of money. He's good looking. He's a great golf player. Everything's going his way. He's getting promoted here, right and left. And he's like, well, why would I want to change? You know, I was, I was sort of tasked with being his Enneagram coach. Well, there's nothing wrong here. And, and he, well, exactly. And what he was overlooking in his 360, his feedback was that people didn't trust him. People couldn't connect with him. Um, and I asked him and the coach who had assigned me to work with him and said, well, did you ask him about that? And he, it's like, he, it's like, it wasn't really getting in, you know, it, that wasn't, that wasn't registering with him because, and, and so I even said, she needs to tell the bosses that they need to change his reward structure if they want him to change and develop his, him as a leader, because it, it's, it's, and so again, when we have threes that are coming to the work, I want to appreciate all the work you are doing because in our culture, it can be even more challenging because it doesn't seem immediately obvious to why this is a good thing, all this personal growth stuff. No, that's right. no social threes here. And no social threes here, yes. <laughs> okay, yes. I just wanted to say that One last, I, give him the mic so he can be no, recording. Not, yeah. not being a social three and not yeah. having any social threes, those are the ones who, who, who like status and big houses and big cars and the pool and the tennis courts in the backyard and all that stuff. For the longest time, I uh, thought I... I have a pool and a tennis court. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Um, but the, 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 the social threes are the more showy threes. And I always... Well, early on when I was learning about the Enneagram, I thought I sucked at being a three because I thought... <laughs> I thought, I thought that's what a three was supposed to be. And until B taught me about being a one-to-one -one three, I, I didn't get it. I, I, yeah, well, I'm mostly a three, but not completely, because I wasn't a social three. That is hilarious. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to a TNS episode documenting the Type 3 panel from the Enneagram Workshop series. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.